Welcome to the LifePoint Church Podcast. Our mission is to help people become fully devoted followers of Christ through intentionally serving, giving, and caring for our neighbor. We bring you Christ-centered messages from our pastors each Sunday, as well as engaging discussions relevant to your life. So grab a cup of coffee, get comfortable, and join us as we strive to grow as followers of Christ and make a positive impact in our community. Well, welcome. I'm Pastor Tim, executive pastor here. So glad you're with us today. I'm excited to be here. If you're new here, a big welcome to you. Hopefully you checked out the New Here Start Here booth. We have a free gift for you if you're watching online. Welcome. Let us know in the comments that you're watching, even if it's after the fact. Well, we are, before I start, you should have got two flyers today. One is for you. One is not for you. So why did I receive two? Well, the first one is our event card for April. This is to put on your fridge to know what's happening here at LifePoint in April. There's a lot going on. The other card is for Holy Week, for Easter week, starting next week with Palm Sunday. And as Pastor Nathan said last week, your testimony, your act of inviting people to church is huge. People are much more likely to come to a church if they know somebody that's there. And so if you are behind us, love what we're doing with our mission and our outreach, then I would encourage you to invite somebody. So this is not for you. This is to pass out. This does not go in the trash or on your fridge. And if you're an introvert... I see you, I love you, but you still have to do it. So what you could do is take a picture of this and text it to somebody, invite them if you don't want to talk to them, all right? That's an idea. (laughs) All right, we got baptisms today after second service. If God's uh, placing on your heart to be baptized for the first time, water baptized or recommitted baptized, we have that today. So we are in Divine Forecast series. You guys enjoying that so far? So, so far we've talked about Ezekiel, the glory of God. We've talked about sheep in need of a shepherd. We've talked about dry bones coming to life in Jesus Christ. And I love it because it's so important to keep the Old Testament, I'd like to say relevant because today a lot of people are like, well, I like to hang out in the New Testament. I like the God of the New Testament, not realizing it's one God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so even if the Old Testament's a little confusing in parts, it doesn't mean that we can't at least get a basic understanding of it. And so the Divine Forecast series is looking at prophets and how their prophecies forecasted uh, Jesus, the Messiah. So we're gonna talk about Amos today. So turn with me to Amos. It is a book in your Bible. He is a prophet. He had a whole nine chapters. He's not like, you know, I don't know, Obadiah or something, right? I mean, that's Old Testament humor. He only had one chapter. So anyway, Amos. So uh, Amos 9. So Amos was a prophet. He took care of sycamore fig trees, and he was called by God to preach to the northern kingdom of Judah. And so Amos prophesied during the king, reign of King Jeroboam of Israel around 793 to 753 B.C., Now, Amos' ministry was to a prosperous Israel. Things were going well according to Israel. They were rich. They took advantage of the poor. There was open idolatry. There was not justice in the courts. And so how many of you know when you're in sin and there's not really any, quote, quote, repercussions that you can see, it's easy to just kind of continue that sin? Well, it's worked for me so far. And so it's hard to give a message of God's holiness, of God's judgment, of God's requirements When sin has, quote, worked out for you, the problem with sin is that it promises life, but the ends thereof are death. And so Amos comes to Judah and declares judgment upon Israel. First two chapters are messages to the nations surrounding Israel and Israel itself. 
Chapters three to six is a message to Israel and its leaders. And then seven to nine is Amos's visions that he received. Now the very end of Amos nine talks about a future hope. So all this potential, you know, coming destruction and judgment, and it ends with hope. So Amos 9, 11, gonna read New King James Version. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Lord, we're so honored to be here today. Lord, we give you glory in everything we say and do. Lord, today is about you, and we just pray that you receive the glory that we give you. We pray that you would Reveal to us the sin in our hearts, Lord, where your presence is lacking, Lord, wherever we've pushed you to the outskirts of our life, Lord, we pray that you would enter in to the inmost part of our being and reveal the things, Lord, that we need to give over to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Amos 9 uh, talks about this tabernacle of David that will be restored, and this is after King David has long been gone. And so when it's talking about restoring a tabernacle of David, the question is, well, what does that mean. So move with me to Acts 15 now. Acts 15. We're going to jump ahead to the New Testament. So Acts 15, the setup for this chapter, there was a council in Jerusalem that was established to talk about what do we do with the Gentiles. This is about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, and this council was established to say, these Gentiles are popping up really fast, Next thing you know, there's another church filled with Gentiles. What do we do as Jewish leaders? Do we require them to be circumcised? Do we say that you shouldn't uh, offer, you know, eat meat that was offered to idols, which was a big thing back then? And so this Jerusalem council was, was filled with the top names at the time. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, other disciples and apostles came together to discuss this matter. Now, Paul and Barnabas talk about their trips. So they've already taken a bunch of trips at this time and established churches. They talk about the Gentile converts and the miracles that they've been seeing. Peter talks about his vision. Remember the net that came down at the in Caesarea where God says, don't declare anything unclean that I've declared clean? Talking about Gentiles, Peter talks about that. And James, the brother of Jesus, talks in verse 15. Acts 15, 15. This is what James says. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this about the Gentiles. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things from long ago. All right, so David's tabernacle, David's tent. Tabernacle means tent. Right? So a lot of times you read commentaries about this verse, it talks about the line of David, the succession, the kingly uh, genealogy of David. And we, we know that, that Jesus was from the line of David, but there's other parts of the Bible that talk about the root of David, like Revelation 22, or it talks about the root of Jesse, which was David's, David's father in Isaiah 11. But the, the actual meaning of the tent of David I think is twofold. You can take it as the line of David, but we're gonna to see today the tent, the actual tent of David had much more significance than the genealogy. It's not an either or, it's an and both, right? So I think that's talking about the kingly reign of, of David leading to Jesus and the tabernacle talks about the priestly, uh, the priestly uh, method that David uh, interacted with God in. 
Isaiah 16.5 also talks about a coming king. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he, sh- he shall sit upon in truth the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment, hasting righteousness. All right, this is about Jesus also, the tabernacle of David. Isaiah is talking about this too. So what is the David's tabernacle? That's the question. Methodist minister George Smith wrote about the tabernacle of David in the mid-19th century. He said, it is scarcely possible to find a more neglected or more important portion of scriptural inquiry than this. Kevin Connor wrote one of the most influential books on the topics in the 1970s, yet when he first heard the phrase tabernacle of David, he admits, I did not even know David had a tabernacle. And as I'm studying this as well, there's, there's so much depth here that you know, I, I hope you'll go home and, and unpack it, listen to it again, because there's a lot here. And I'll try to just basically skim the surface so we understand what David's tabernacle was. And to do that, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 6. I'm going to bookmark that. I need to set up the history of the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant was given to the Israelites, and, and Moses built it. And the Ark of the Covenant, when we talk about that, it's going to signify God's presence. Right, the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies. It signified the presence of God. In the Ark was Aaron's staff that budded. There was a gold jar of manna, and there was the Ten Commandments. Now, I haven't studied this, but I think those three things kind of signify the Holy Spirit in some way. Interesting study. If you find something on that, send it to me. I haven't had time to look into that. But we see the Ark of the Covenant through Israel, through the desert, with Moses, Moses set up Moses' tabernacle. All right, so this was in the desert. This was a, a, a tent with the outer courts, the inner courts, the Holy of Holies that was set up to then be fulfilled in Solomon's temple, which was much the same setup but much more magnificent. And in between those two things of the tabernacle of Moses and Solomon's temple, we find David's tabernacle. All right, we know the fulfillment of the temple is a New Testament reality today. When Paul talks about the temple six times, five of those times are corporate, that you are the temple. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 3.16. So we know a lot of the the, the temple and the, the way that they interacted with God at the time was a foreshadowing of Jesus and our New Testament reality today. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was carried into the promised land over the River Jordan. And after the time of Joshua, we had the time of Judges, and the Judges rose and fall based on, you know, Israel crying out at the time or God sending a judge to kind of repel the wickedness and Israel turn back to it. So Judges is back and forth with wickedness, not really one one ruler at the time other than God. And so the ark was kind of not really front and center at that time. And at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, we see that the Ark of the Covenant was actually captured by the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant that symbolizes the presence of God was captured. How did that happen? Well, (laughs) this happened because when Samuel was just starting to be a prophet, he was under Eli the high priest, and Eli's sons were idolatrous, rebelled against God, and they were priests. And they had this brilliant idea, why don't we take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us and God's got to honor it and we'll defeat our enemies. Well, God doesn't have to honor anything, especially if you're not following by his rules. And so they brought the Ark into the battle and the Ark was captured. And the Philistines got the Ark. The Ark ark caused 
the idol Dagon to fall over overnight and worship the ark. It's actually a cool story, read it. And the people began getting sick, getting tumors, and the Philistines were like, we don't want anything to do with this ark. Let's get rid of it. So they put it on some, some cows and just let it, let it go on a, on a cart. Let's see where it takes us. If it goes over to Israel, then great. Israel's problem now to deal with that ark. Israel, the ark stops at a couple towns. One of the towns, people start opening the ark and 70 people die. A real Indiana Jones moment. And then they finally send the ark to Kirith Jerem, where it stays for 20 years. It was abandoned. The presence of God was abandoned for 20 years at Kirith Jerem. This was during the reign of King Saul. Saul comes to power because Israel asks for a king. They say, we want a king so we can look like the other nations. That was their reason. And God's like, are you sure? Because the king is going to enslave your sons, bring them to the military, take a portion of your, stock, of your livestock and your crops. Are you sure you want a king? And they said, yes, we want a king because we want to look like the other nations. God's like, all right. So he gave him a king that was like the celebrity king. Saul was a head, head taller than everyone else. He was someone you would look at and be like, I want that person to lead me. There was a problem with Saul, his heart. You might say he tried, but his heart was not for God. It was for himself. And so God removes his Holy Spirit from Saul. And so God says, all right, we tried it your way. I gave you a king that looked like your heart. I'm going to give you a king that looks like my heart. So he gives him David. But not right away. David spent a lot of time learning to trust God. Whereas Saul was elevated immediately, David took time to be a shepherd, to trust God, to protect the livestock from the wolves, which allowed him to face Goliath because he knew he could trust God. And then finally, when David's anointed king, now think about this, David's anointed king, and it takes him seven years to become king. Because during that time, after he's anointed by Samuel, by God, Saul tries to kill him. So many of the Psalms we see is David on the run. Seven years is a long time, and you're like, God, your promises, you told me this, and now I've got to wait. David didn't know it was seven years of the time. He just had to wait, thinking he might die at any moment, still trusting God, still realizing, God, you promised this. And so David's faith was tested and tried, but it developed something in him that was a passion for, God, I can't do this on my own. I, I have to rely on God. I'm just a shepherd. God, if this is what you want, I have to step into your purpose. I have to, I need your presence. And we talk about presence today. There's, you know, well, God's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Yes, but there's a difference between the manifest presence of God and the omnipresence of God, right? We see that in the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament when God shows up in a mighty way. He did that with Moses in the burning bush. Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. He did that in the Ark of the Covenant, symbolized God's presence. He did that at Pentecost. That was a manifest filling of God's Holy Spirit. So David dug into his relationship with God after those seven years. David finally comes to power after Saul dies. Now David takes Jerusalem. He takes Jerusalem, and from that point on, Jerusalem has been known as the city of David. He takes Jerusalem, and Jerusalem has always been occupied by a remnant of Jews since that time. David made it his cap capital, and even through persecution and exile, Jerusalem has maintained the capital even to this day, the city of David. He captures Jerusalem. Now David is king over the north 
and south of Israel. He's, he's king over all of Israel. What's on David's heart? Let's get a great military strategy. Let's get a great economic strategy. Let's get all these people together and make the best city. His heart is, let's go get the ark. Let's go get the ark of the Lord again, for we did not seek him in the days of Saul. 1 Chronicles 13.3. So the overflow of David's heart is that, okay, I have Jerusalem now. Let's go get the ark, because I don't want to do this king thing without the king of kings and his presence. So we see that overflow of David's heart. 2 Samuel 6.1. So he's going to go get the ark. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000, and he and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. This is, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. This is the part where Uzzah touches the ark and dies, so jump to 12. Now King David was told the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might while he and Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. All right, so what happens here is that David confers with all his leaders in First Chron similar story, the same story is in First Chronicles as well. So there's different pieces that, you know, you get from the story being in Chronicles versus Second Samuel. So David confers with his leaders. He goes and gets the ark, but the problem the first time around is that they get it and they put the ark of the covenant on a new cart. This is the same way the Philistines transported the Ark of the Covenant. It was a problem because it was still a cart and that was not God's prescription for how his presence would be transported. He had higher standards for Israel, which led to Uzzah dying. It made me think about a new cart. It made a, it made a point to say new. It wasn't just an old cart. It was a, God, we're giving you a new cart to transport your presence. Doesn't that mean anything? made me think, what new cart do we place before God thinking it will replace our obedience? What dressed up thing of the world do you try to make look good before God when he has called you to a deeper level of consecration and obedience to his word? We can dress up sin all we want, but God sees right through it. It's easy to say, well, the Philistines did it. They got away with it. Sometimes we look at the world and be like, why can they get away with that? God, why can't I do that? They're, they even say they're Christian. God has higher standards for his people. So Uzzah dies trying to manhandle the ark. He may have had good intentions, but God doesn't, mean, God doesn't need man's help on man's terms. And so David's frustrated. He's like, ah, oh, it's pointless. Uzzah dies. Our pets' heads are falling off. 
So he parks it in Obed-Edom's house. Obed-Edom is a Gittite, a Gentile. He parks the ark over at his house, shows up in his garage. David's like, I don't know, we'll figure this out later. Now it's funny because Obed-Edom is a Gentile and he's being blessed. His 401k's up, his kids are on the dean's list, his marriage is great. All this awesome stuff is happening to Obed-Edom. Think of what it's like to have the presence of God in your house. This is a New Testament reality. As Gentiles, we now have the presence of God. Goes back to Acts and Amos when he talks about the Gentiles coming because of the tabernacle of David. We still haven't got to the tabernacle of David yet. Now, during this time of waiting in 1 Chronicles, it actually breaks up this story a little bit. So Uzzah dies, and 2 Samuel picks it up right away. But in 1 Chronicles, there's actually a battle that takes place during that three months that it's at Obed-Edom's house. And in that battle, it says twice that David inquired of the Lord before battle. You see, previously when he went to go get the ark, he inquired of his leaders. Let's go get the ark. Seems like a good idea. And even though, even though David had good intentions, he didn't inquire of the Lord, how should we do it? So maybe that was a learning period for David on what it's like to inquire of God. So David hears about Obed-Edom's success and prosperity, and he's like, oh yeah, that ark, we need to try again. But this time they do it right. You see, God gave them a prescription for how his presence would be handled, not on carts, but on men, on Levites, with poles on their shoulders. Moses commanded this according to the word of the Lord, 1 Chronicles 15, 15. This is also a New Testament reality because God's presence was meant to be on men and women. And today we have the presence of God, Holy Spirit inside of us, and we receive salvation. We are, we are glory carriers. We are presence carriers of God, even if you don't believe it, even if you think, oh yeah, but not me. That's how God designed it. And so just like the Levites were carrying the presence of God, so we today carry the presence of God. Do people see God through us? If we're living by you know, the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit, people will see that. They should know us by our love. There's something different about the second time as well. We had musicians, we had Levites, we had priests. The second time required blood. Every six steps they sacrificed. It's not very much. I could probably do six on here. One, two, three, four, five, six. Kill. Another six. Kill. Another six. Kill. All the way up to Jerusalem. Trail of blood. Up to Jerusalem, which was on a hill. I get choked up thinking about the fact that Jesus had a trail of blood up to the hill of Golgotha, beaten, trail of blood flowing up to the hill, Golgotha, which means the skull where he was crucified. This was David's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Kings at the time, and more than likely Saul did this as well, the triumphal entry would be to glorify the king that had a battle or took a city, and more than likely Saul was the elevated king, like a parade float, you know, on the top, everyone praising Saul. David's triumphal entry did not look like a normal king. 
David wore an ephod, which is a priestly garment. Some say priestly underwear. It's not like we think of underwear. It's an undergarment. Didn't mean he was indecent necessarily. It just meant he was wearing the robes of a priest because David in that moment knew that there's only one king, and that's not me. That's what we read at the beginning, Psalm 24. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. That's as they're entering Jerusalem. There's one king of glory, and David's like, it's not me. I'm going to take my role as a priest during this time to give God the praise he's due. You see, David stepped into a role as a priest, even though he wasn't a priest, a thousand years before what we consider now the priesthood of all believers that we have is ministering unto the Lord. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of him that called you out of darkness into wonderful light. Revelation 5.10, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. The priesthood we have as believers, but also the kingship we have with the king of kings. It's twofold. And it was twofold for David. He was king. He also took on the priesthood for that time. Now, as a processing up to Jerusalem with a trail of blood, worshiping, dancing before God. There was a point where they, came, they would have had to come to an intersection where they either turn to Gibeon, which was a town about five, six miles away where the tabernacle of Moses was, still in operation. 20 years the Ark of the Covenant has been gone. No presence in the tabernacle of Moses, no presence of God, but still going through the, the rituals. Or they turn and go to Jerusalem, the new capital, the new center of everything. David had that option to go back or to push forward to Jerusalem. Matthew Lilly, who wrote this book on David's tabernacle, he said, the tent in Gibeon is the tent of empty religion. There were rituals, their rituals continued without the presence of God, just as many churchgoers go through the motions of Christianity while detached from true intimacy with the Lord. David leads them to Jerusalem, and he takes them to a tent or a shelter. The word is sukkah, S-U-K-A-H, established right next to his throne in Jerusalem. There wasn't much to this tent that we know of. It could have just been a Coleman tent for all we know, but it was, it was on poles, and it was, it was open. It wasn't set up like the outer courts, the inner courts, holy of holies that we know of, and so David sets this up in the middle. He wanted God at the center. He wanted Israel to experience the presence of God corporately that he already knew privately. David wanted that for Israel. It was important for him. He appointed 4,000 Levites, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to minister to the Lord. He put the ark at the center. Music and praise became a priority. Like I said, he just took over all of Israel and his council's like, all right, what do we do? Do we grow our military? Do we grow our crops? Do we do this and economic trade? And David's like, no, let's set aside 4,000 Levites to just worship the Lord nonstop because that's a priority. We can worry about that other stuff later. But that's a big expense. That doesn't make sense. David's like, I know the importance of God's presence in everything we do. I saw what happened to Saul. I don't want to go down that road. 
instruments for the first time used in recorded history in the Bible. Before that, it was a shofar, shofar blast, and this is the first time we see music, musical instruments to give God praise. Tyler Statton wrote an amazing book on prayer. He said, David put prayer back at the very center of God's people, and he invited everyone, men and women, slave and free, Israelite and pagan. The 33 years of David's kingship were the only time before the resurrection that there were no restrictions on access to God's presence. David's tabernacle was a New Testament reality in an Old Testament world. That's the scandal of this prayer tent. A.W. Tozer, amazing Christian author, he said, I want the presence of God himself and I don't want anything, or I don't want anything to do with religion. I want all that God has for me or I don't want any of it. Don't you want all that God has for you? Unlike Moses' tabernacle where the high priest could only enter one day a year, it seems that the ark was accessible in David's tabernacle. We see Levites ministering before the ark in 1 Chronicles 16. The emphasis shifts from the physical structure to the presence of God and the worshipers themselves. So these, there's implications to this. When we, when we learn from this and we see it in our New Testament lens today with the whole Bible in front of us, there's implications for prioritizing the presence of God. In our church, in the church body, there's, there's implications for this. We have to prioritize prayer, not just do programs for program's sake without prayer, not ministering to others without ministering to God first, leadership modeling and others following. Prayer is not something we throw on the outskirts. We have a prayer team for that. We have pastors for that. No, we're all called to be priests, ministering to God, praying before God. And something cool I'll announce today is that we, I mentioned this at our business meeting last month, but we're moving forward with a 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week prayer chapel. And so we're going to put it out in the back where there's a dirt lot, 40 by 40 lot. We're going to make it 24 by 36, I believe, and allow it open access for people to come. And I'm super excited about it because I've seen other churches do this and I've seen, I've seen the, the benefit of being just having a, a place of refuge to go at all times. And I just think about the, what might happen if someone from the school next door gets off and they had a you know, craziness at home and they know there's a place to pray and they come. A husband and wife argue and one of them comes here instead of going to the bar, right? Just craziness of life happens and so... It's like, I'm just going to take an hour and go pray. I think it's going to be awesome. I'm super excited about it, and I hope you pray with us. I, I, know, I know God's in it. I know he'll, he'll make a way, and so, you know, it wasn't something we necessarily budgeted this year. We're going to make it happen one way or another, and so if you'd like to come alongside us and, and contribute financially, we have an option in push pay for giving. Uh, for prayer chapel, you can give to that. You can write a check and write it on there, so... Be asking God how you want to give to that. It's probably about 40000 to get it going. Um, and so we'll have more on that coming up. But that's one way as a church we're going to make prayer a focus. And not just, like I said, confined to a chapel, but in everything we do, which we've already started doing. We have, you know, Pastor Prayer Hour on Monday. We have worship at 11, at 11 o'clock on Thursdays. Acoustic worship anyone can come to. We want to weave it through our ministries to make prayer presence of God of focus. But we need you.
We need the church to be the church and to let others know what they're missing when they don't have that. And that's where the presence of God, the implications for that in our personal life is that God is the center. As David wanted the presence of God, the center of Jerusalem, we have to say to God, I want you at the center of everything. Maybe we think he is. We have to be really honest with ourselves. He might be the center of this one area, but in my marriage and finances, he's not. He needs to be the center of everything. I find it interesting that David reigned in Jerusalem for 33 years, also pointing to Christ who was on earth for 33 years. I find it interesting that David's triumphal entry did not look like Jesus' triumphal entry as people expected a king to look like. We'll talk more about that next week for Palm Sunday. At the very end, when David returned the ark, you can find his praise, his song to God in 1 Chronicles 16, 11. He says, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. That's what David says. It's not a one and done, I have Jesus now in my back pocket, I'll pull him out when I need him. No, this is a relationship. This is something we have to seek after continually. Your best efforts a month ago or a year ago were great, but today's a new day. I need God today, just as I did yesterday and the day before. Seek his presence continually. The, word, the Hebrew word for continually is tamid, which means to stretch. Continually. I wouldn't have thought that would be the translation for continually, but it means to stretch. Has God stretched you? Or do we just do what's comfortable? When we seek him continually, God's going to ask us to stretch. He's going to ask us to do things that are uncomfortable. If you've been following God for 10 years and haven't been stretched, then get on your knees and ask God. Because I know in my life, it's constantly stretching. The reason I'm preaching to you today is because I've been stretched. I have to make room for God in our schedule. If your schedule is too busy for God, then you're too busy. If your schedule is too busy for God, you're too busy. David had a heart where he could say in Psalm 27, one thing I ask of the Lord, this one thing do I seek, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. David had a heart for worship, which allowed him to have a heart for God. So as we close with communion, we need to remember, if you haven't received the elements around the back, we need to remember that the significance of David's tabernacle and the, the tabernacle of David for the Gentiles is us today. Us today that have access to the presence of God because Jesus tore down the veil. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, read Hebrews, tore down the veil so we can now access what was previously restricted. And David caught a glimpse of this, but it's now become a reality because of Jesus. And so that's why we take communion to remember the great sacrifice to remember 
the work on the cross and not become callous to it and oh, I've heard it a thousand times, but to, to still be moved by it. Maybe you need to ask God for a heart of flesh today instead of a heart of stone to be moved, to cry again, to not put on airs like you just have it all figured out. No one does. It's when we submit to God and say, God, I need more of you. I don't even know what tomorrow looks like. I need you today. The Bible says to examine ourselves as we take communion. If there's any part of our life that is not given over completely to God, we got work to do. I know I do still. We all do. We never arrive. <laughs> but there's... There's, there's gold when you read this Bible, but there's also nuggets when you start getting deeper into it. And this story today of David and the tabernacle is something you may never have thought about before, but you see so many examples in the Old Testament that point to Jesus Christ, our Savior today, who is alive, who is real, who can change every aspect of your life if you let him. If we open up our heart to him. So Lord, we remember your, your body broken for us on the cross. We remember the sacrifice that cost you so much, but you did it out of love. You did it. You did it for one person. You did it for every person. So Lord, we remember the sacrifice. We don't take it for granted. Lord, show us how we can prioritize your presence more. Go and take the bread. As the blood of Jesus was shed on the cross, as we saw David sacrificing with the trail of blood leading up the hill, we remember the blood of Jesus, which covers our sins. A one and done sacrifice, so we don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> Praise God. The blood of Jesus is all we need. It is complete. Go and take the drink. I pray that God's stirring on your hearts today. I know I've been moved by this topic many times as I've been preparing. I would encourage you to let God reveal in you. It might be uncomfortable, it might be messy, it might be tears, but it'll be good. So as we go before God, come up front, kneel, ask for prayer. If you need healing, ask for prayer. If you need just confirmation with another partner that if this is what I need to do. I know it's hard, but I need, I need prayer that I have the strength to go through it. Come pray, please. Mm -hmm.